When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC, and my name's Sammy James. Welcome to the second edition of the Fulhamish Annual, where we take a look back at the season that just was, with snippets from the podcast throughout the year. Today, we'll be diving back through the 22-23 campaign for Fulham and giving a snapshot of the conversation at various points during the season. We're going to be going all the way from pre-season expectations to Fulham securing a top 10 finish in May. And despite the promise that automatic promotion would result in signings coming through the door early on, that wasn't quite how it panned out. However, on July the 4th, João Polina was the first confirmed transfer for Fulham and... He turned out all right, didn't he? From what I've been hearing and from, from those I've been speaking to about uh, Palinha, this is quite clearly a, almost a bit of a coup, I think, for Fulham. Because considering, I know that last season probably he didn't quite hit the same height. Even then, still an important part of Ruben Amarin's sporting team. You know, heading into the delayed Euros last summer, he was fantastic. Uh, a linchpin in that sporting team, pushed himself into the national side, adapted seamlessly, a really solid player, a defensive midfielder who is aggressive, can win the ball back, um, and has also really improved on his ball distribution. Um, switching the play is something he does very often and very effectively uh, for his former club. So um, I think he ticks a lot of boxes. I think he fits straight into Silver's system. I think... Adaptation, of course, will be the interesting thing because it always is with, with any new recruit, but he's been playing in a 3-4-3 for, for two seasons, uh, playing in a two in midfield. And, and, and you do wonder whether Silva may pivot towards having him alongside Reed. And you actually, the two different profiles of defensive midfielders there that seem to complement each other quite well. And it wasn't just the fans who were unhappy at the lack of transfers. Marco Silva was also pretty mad about the slow transfer progress. As Peter outlines. Silver's position is now pretty pretty clear on how the window has gone in terms of these delays and in bringing players through the door. As, as we reported over the weekend, you know, he's was unhappy about how slow it's been in, in getting players in through the door. He was unhappy about returning to Motspur Park to start pre-season with 10 outfield players. Of course, there were four other players as well who he's not included in the group. Um, because he wants them to be moved on. That's Josh Onomo, Anthony Knockart, Avin Cavallero and Terence Congolo. Um, and it, and it, it sort of voiced that fr- frustration, really, especially considering if you think back to the end of the season where you know, th- there was a lot of emphasis on how important that time gap is that Fulham have. You know, we talked about it. Tony Khan talked about it in his interview with Daniel Taylor at The Athletic. Um, Marco Silva spoke publicly about it as well. You know, this was more time than Fulham have had before upon promotion and they wanted to take advantage of it. And there are loads of different elements to this because, you know, it's not like Fulham have just been sitting there doing nothing because that's just not the case. But actually getting them over the line is, has 
has just not materialized. And that frustration for silver is, has, is, is very clear. And, um, it's something that you don't want to fester. You don't want this kind of environment. It's not a good thing. You can't have your manager like this at pre-season's beginning. You know, the Premier League season hasn't started yet. However, soon after, Andreas Pereira's signing from Manchester United was confirmed. A man who would go on to become a key player for the Whites this season. This email from our podcast just after we signed him has aged pretty well. Uh, he says, hey guys, big fan of the pod and your online articles. Hope you're all safe and well. Listen to last week's pod and was surprised to hear that the mood around Fulham is uncertainty slash doubt around the now confirmed acquisition of Andreas Pereira. I have to say, I'm really excited about this move and I wanted to tell you why. He goes on to say that he's been following Pereira pretty closely since his time at United under Van Hull. His dad's a pretty big Man U supporter and as a result, he watches a lot of their games with him. He then goes on to say, I have to say that him being frozen out at United had little to do with visibility and more to do with managers like Jose Mourinho's preferences and later the form and or price tag of players playing in front of him. I think he's a little bit tarnished in the eyes of the media as someone who's a flop because he didn't make the cut at United, although arguably they really needed a player with his talents last season. Eight million plus add-ons is a steal for someone who, in my opinion, is a nailed on starter at the majority of clubs outside the top 10. He brings Premier League experience and his low moves mean that he'll be likely to be adaptive to new styles particularly the one Silver uses at Fulham as he's expressed his desire to play in a technical ball retention system. He finally says, I truly believe Pereira will be a success at Fulham and produce plenty of displays to turn the English media's perception of him around. Now he's here. Why don't we get behind our new face and show him the support and love that we have for this brilliant institution? Um, And that is from Camille. While a lot of the focus was on who Fulham would sign ahead of a big Premier League campaign, there was also another issue bubbling away. In early July, Fulham announced that ticket prices for the opening game against Liverpool were as much as £100 in the new Riverside stand. Here's Archie Rintut on how he felt when those prices were announced. It did hit me hard. It hit me hard because I think I am like many other Fulham fans out there, many other football fans out there in the the football club I support, Fulham, is an extension of me. And when Fulham do good things, I think back to what happened this last season with Reese Porter and the way that the team responded when they clambered over the, the advertising hoardings to go celebrate with him away at Bristol City. I think of the action that was taken after the Millwall home game where they went over the team and management to console and talk to the family of Paul Parrish. Those were human gestures. And I looked at those moments and I was like, this is my club. I am so proud that this is my club. And it works the other way, sadly. It works in reverse when you charge inhuman prices like the club have done with £65 for the cheapest tickets uh, for the Liverpool game going up to £100 for the Riverside stand. And sure, the tickets have sold out, but it's about what this club stands for. And the problem is, is that currently the good things about Fulham and what it stands for, they come from the players. They come from the management. When that's, that's, that's not how it should be. It should be that the club is dictating what are the standards and the values that it stands for. So it was early August. The new Premier League season was around the corner. 
As is customary at that time of year, it's the moment to make predictions about how your team and others will fare. Here's what myself, Jack and Peter thought when it came to Fulham's final position and the points total we'd accrue. 16-39. Peter. Oh, this is so tough. Like, I'm on the fence between 17th and 18th, which is... Which is is the stress. Which is quite (laughs) a stressful (laughs) fence um, to fall beside. I think Fulham will get similar points to Jackson, 37 or 38 for me, but I think it's going to be a high points total to stay up. And it's literally for me, my prediction between Fulham and Southampton. 17th, 30, what did I say? 38? Yeah. 38 points. 17th, 38 points. Fine. We'll do that. Okay. I'm going to go for 15th. Oh, bloody hell. And 42 points. I'd be so happy. That would make me so happy. 40 points, my God. Imagine getting over the 40 point, the magic 40 points total. <laughs> it's, been, it's been 8 million years. <laughs> you know what? I was too negative last year and I didn't say that Fulham would win the league. I learned my mistake. Yeah. So I've gone the, I've gone the opposite. I think it's going to be a final day job in this. Not quite a final day job in the end, Jack, but always enjoyable to hear when your predictions were far too pessimistic. Fulham's opening match then came around and it couldn't be much harder as Champions League finalist Liverpool travelled to Craven Cottage. Only months earlier, Jurgen Klopp's men were chasing a historic quadruple, but on a sunny Saturday lunchtime at the cottage, Silva's men shocked the league by taking the lead twice against the Reds, only for Nunes and Salah to salvage a point for the visitors. Despite drawing, the mood on the podcast was buoyant. There were so many good vibes about yesterday. You know, turning up um, quite early on, the sun was shining. It was a beautiful day out. But uh, everyone had loads of smiles on their faces. Everyone was really up for it. And I think that translated to the players on the pitch as well. You could tell straight from the off that the players were up for it. I don't know whether Marco Silva's been showing a lot of the players about the doom and gloom that a lot of pundits and and fans alike have been saying about this team um but straight from the off um it looked very positive we were playing on the front foot um which was in comparison strangely to the Liverpool team who turned up quite looking quite tired and underprepared whereas Fulham looked prepared for it they had a clear game plan every single time that uh Liverpool tried to play it forward whether it was Tosin, Ream, Paulinia, Reed, Robinson, Tete they were all defending on the front foot trying to nip it off the off the toes of of the Liverpool attackers and it worked really really well and we pressed them in the right areas and we attacked in the right areas. The following week Fulham's first away day was at Molyneux against Wolves. The UK was experiencing a massive heat wave and the lack of shade in the away end was a brutal experience for those that travelled to the black country and then Wolves decided to commit a war crime. The person who was probably the most despised person at the game yesterday was whoever decided to have the flamethrowers on at Molyneux to just warm everyone up just that little bit more. The absolute intensity of that fire. It must look really good at night, but not in the height of summer, not on a day like that. Surely someone must have had a word going, should we, should we not have the flamethrowers say, yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's not do that. Nope. There was not even a discussion. They went ahead with it. We all got singed uh, eyebrows from it. Thanks very much, Wolves. Just a week previously, Brentford had shocked the entire league after going four goals up against Manchester United in the first half. In this match, though, it was Fulham who made a quick start, racing into a two-goal lead, only to be pegged back by the Bees in the second half. However, in stoppage time, up stepped the man of the hour to win the derby. Looks for Mitrovic! 
Trevor Cottage Wild. It is Derby Day delight. Have Fulham snatched it at the end? So nice to sort of, yes, we got, they got back into the game. You know, Brentford had very, uh, very lot of chances in that sort of beginning of the second half. It was so good to see us get that last-minute winner and the confidence that will do to the squad after sort of conceding that set-piece goal just for the half-time whistle, I think. But, yeah, no, it's just, it's just like great to see us just showing the Premier League that we're not just, we're not a Norwich, we're not a West Brom, we're here to stay and Mitrovic is definitely Premier League quality. That you're not, you're not Serbia's top goal scorer for nothing. After the high of Brentford, Fulham were in Carabao Cup action against Crawley Town, who were propping up League Two at the time. Marco Silva named a rotated side and gave a debut to new signing Issa Diop. It was an awful evening as the Sussex side won comfortably by two goals to nil and several Fulham players put in zero out of 10 performances, most notably Nat Chalaba. Afterwards, Fulham then had a tricky trip to North London to face an Arsenal side that had had a 100% start. Mitrovic did give Fulham the lead, but eventually the Gunners came back to win. That following Tuesday, unbeaten Brighton were the next visitors to Craven Cottage, and the Whites produced another brilliant performance to inflict the Seagulls' first defeat of the season. Yeah, there's something happening, isn't there? It, feel, it feels like the, the things are on, on the rise. And this is the thing, you know, we, we've always said this. It's been such a brilliant start to the season. There are going to come bumps in the road. There are going to come setbacks. There are going to be tricky periods in this season. And it just feels like everybody's still firmly behind things. And, and I think that that will carry over through those tricky periods. And it's why, you know, we, we recorded on Sunday and we were talking about the game on Saturday night and it being like, okay, it was tough. We lost. But we gave a good account of ourselves. We we held our own. And and Silva's, you know, his tactical setups, his ability to adapt in the Premier League, which is the big thing we were questioning, right? Not necessarily in, in a kind of negative sense, but being like, okay, you can dominate the championship. It's about whether you can make that work in a system that suits the Premier League. And so many teams get that wrong. Um, and so far, everything has come up trumps. It was a busy week at Fulham, with transfer deadline day falling just a couple of days after that Brighton match. As ever, Fulham were pretty busy, signing Carlos Vinicius, Dan James, Levin Kazawa and Willian. The general mood on the subsequent podcast was fairly positive. If we had said at the start of the window, we're going to get 11 players in and we're going to cover every position, I think most Fulham fans would be happy with that one. 11 players through the door, can't really complain. They're all of decent quality as well. I don't see that we're bringing in too many players that we're saying they're, they're way below our quality that exists at the minute. If we were to take that squad and compare it to some of the previous Premier League squads that we've seen Fulham put out over the years, even just the transfers that we've brought in are an upgrade on that. So I think we've we've probably gone for a higher level of quality. I think, obviously, well, I know that Silver would have preferred if those players were in earlier. So I think if we rate the transfers themselves and the personnel that came in, I'd probably say it's, it's a pretty decent transfer window. The fact that a lot of them came in on transfer deadline day and towards the end is probably a little frustrating. Um, but we've done well enough with the points, so we've actually managed to get through that period. Our first match in September was another trip to North London. It was Fulham's poorest league performance thus far, and Spurs arguably should have won by more than a 2-1 margin. Due to the Queen's death, there was a two-week break before our next match, as we headed to fellow promotees Nottingham Forest. Despite being 1-0 down at the break, Fulham produced a scintillating second-half performance, scoring three times in just five minutes to blow away Steve Cooper's men. It meant that Fulham had an all-important away win, which remarkably pulled Fulham into sixth place in the table. Expectations of a relegation struggle were starting to fade into the distance. This game just shows how much we're oozing confidence and it just shows how much of a different team we are this time and how, you know, those that frantic six minutes of goals is something that we would have never done in the seasons that we were in the Prem before. 
Um, and I just think it shows that maybe, maybe this time it could be different. And it was just such a good away day. I was saying to you guys, I think I haven't had a away day since Luton. I just had so much fun. It was so good. It was such a good away end. It was such a good day. And living and breathing that Jao Polina chant for the first time was so much fun. I had such a good day. After the international break, Fulham did though suffer their first home defeat of the season to a rampant Newcastle side, not helped by Nat Chalaber getting a very early red card. We then made it back-to-back defeats after a 3-1 loss at West Ham. Each of the Hams' goals were extremely questionable and the mood afterwards was pretty black. My issue, I don't want these to be given as handball, but under the letters of the law, it, sh- it should be, because it, one, it hits his knuckles, then it hits his elbow and then he scores. And as far as I'm aware, the law is, if it leads directly to a goal, anything that hits your hand or your arm has to be disallowed, like we saw Marcus Rashford's goal against Pickford last night. I'll get on to, we'll get on to Antonio one later because I know there's a bit of debate about different phases of play, etc. But that's the rule. So therefore, I don't understand why it's not. Well, I'm, I don't want these to be given as handball. And in an ideal world, this isn't handball. They score their 2-1 up. Uh, he's celebrating straight away. If we want to we have a fluid game of football. But if these are the rules, stick to them. And they're simply, they're simply not doing that. After West Ham, Fulham managed to pick up a point at home to Bournemouth. And the following Thursday, Steven Gerrard's Aston Villa rolled into the cottage. The away side were in disarray and Fulham dispatched them 3-0, which led to this news swiftly afterwards. Less than 90 minutes after the full-time whistle sounded at Craven Cottage, Aston Villa have sacked Steven Gerrard. Villa lost the game 3-0 and also had Douglas Ruiz sent off. Gerrard leaves Villa after just under a year in charge with the club just outside the bottom three, but only on goal scored. They came out and they were so passive. And, and there's one thing you can't be against a Marco Silva Fulham side, and that's passive. Because we have the quality and the sequences that we put together that really punish teams who don't press us in the, in the middle third, especially. I thought Polina was great at orchestrating it all. And then that final third, having Willian, who... Was, was brilliant. I mean, I thought he was so, so good. Just dictating the play, he picked up the ball so often. Those little pockets of space just, just outside the area, sort of the corner of the box, where he then has the option to put the ball in or release Anthony Robinson most of the time. We, we were brilliant. and But some of it is prefaced by just how poor Villa were. And the great results just kept coming. Three days later, we headed up to Leeds to face another under-pressure manager, Jesse Marsh. Despite going 1-0 down again, Fulham stunned Elland Road with three goals and left West Yorkshire with a 3-2 win. Another pristine away day for the travelling Fulham fans. The belief this side have in their ability to score goals more than anything else is exemplary and look there's only been one game where we haven't scored this season it's we're currently I think I saw earlier we're on track for scoring 70 goals this season if we to keep up our current scoring rate now we're on track to concede 70 as well so there's, there's that yeah. that we can come on to but overall the ability of this side to make things happen to score goals and to, to really punish teams when we're when we're playing well is is very impressive and, and that's what made me the happiest I think on, on Sunday The World Cup in Qatar was quickly approaching with only three games remaining. Fulham drew a blank against Everton and then Fulham were heartbroken by two late goals in successive matches. First was a 95th minute Erling Haaland penalty and the second was a stoppage tie-in winner for Alejandro Garnacho against Manchester United. It was a tough one to take and not the ideal way to go into a World Cup break. I thought we played fantastically well uh, yet again. Showing our quality this season in the opening 14-15 games we've played and I think with last week with Manchester City, it was almost a case we were just holding on despite us having a man advantage. But um, 
I thought in the, the, the latter stage of the game, we looked the more likely to go on and win the game. And it was the the actual shock of the winner that sort of took the the wind out of our sails. Honestly, it was um, it was quite extraordinary. Just did not see it coming, especially with three added minutes. Now, with three added minutes, it's almost quite easy to see a game out. And yet somehow we managed to capitulate and concede. It was extraordinary. After the World Cup, Fulham were in an interesting predicament. It had been a great start, but we were only six points above the relegation zone. Our first match back was against Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park. After taking the lead, Fulham suddenly found themselves with a two-man advantage after Tyreek Mitchell and James Tompkins were both red-carded. In the end, we went on to win three goals to nil and Christmas cheer was in full swing in SW6. I think we started especially brilliantly. I think first 15, 20 minutes, we were really, really strong. And I think it was just our game plan was just was just so much better than, than Palace, more defined. I couldn't really see what Crystal Palace were trying to do in that game. They spent a lot of time sort of pinning long balls up to Wilfred Zaha, who was bullied all game by Issa Diop. I thought Issa Diop was exceptional. He handled him brilliantly. He won the physical duels. He was smarter than him. He, he got there, got to the ball first regularly. It was it was a very impressive performance again from Issa. But then in possession, I thought we were brilliant. I thought our midfield three linked up perfectly. I think they, they, they picked out the triangles. They played through what was at times a bit of a patchy Palace press, but we were just we were just better in every area across the pitch. After Palace, Southampton, Leicester, and Hull in the FA Cup were all narrowly beaten, and up next was struggling Chelsea at Craven Cottage, who only days before had just signed Zhao Felix on loan. Nerves were high in the build-up, particularly with Mitrovic suspended. Yeah, everyone is absolutely buzzing. I can't wait. Uh, I was so looking forward to the game on. I think it was scheduled for the twelfth of September, and obviously that got cancelled because of the Queen's death, but. Now we're going to play them and it's the best time, 100%. They've got, they're on Rizzler paper injuries, so many, so many big names injured. I mean, today they were playing youth players at left back and right back and maybe because that's a cup, they're going to get a run, they had a run out. But yeah, I think this could be Potter's last game if we do turn them over. And for Chelsea, I think playing Fulham is the worst opponent possible because we're, we're going to be absolutely gagging to beat them. It had been nearly 17 years since Fulham's last win over the Blues and Fulham delivered on the night. Willian scored against his old club and then an unlikely hero wrote himself into history. In by Pereira. Carlos finishes! special night wasn't it? it it helps when it's under the lights you know I know I know it was a Thursday night which is a bit unusual um get used to it but- <laughs> <laughs> here we it. go here we go but no to, to have that occasion to have the eyes of everyone watching there's no other game really on everyone had the chance to see what Fulham can do and you know I, we talked about last week about Brentford and getting that scout uh, I asked Marco Silva about it as well and he said it it was the next thing. Like it was something that he was very aware of that, you know, the results have been very good against everyone other than the traditional top six. And it was important to get that one result that can, well, can show you can do it. And I mean, it's not like Fulham haven't performed well against the big teams. Um, we saw that against City and against United and Liverpool. And it just want, just needed that win. And he, he put it down to small details. And, and, and to be fair, the small details did go Fulham's way last night. Um, those 
well, I say small detail when, when Joe Felix goes flying in on Kenny Tetter, who just seems to attract these kind of challenges. Yeah. You know, the Kung poor Fu man. Kenny. I mean, the Kung Fu Kenny just gets it back quite often. Um, so uh, thankfully he's, he's absolutely fine. But um, no, as you say, a really special occasion, the whole thing, the, the feeling of it, but you kind of, you know, even though Mitrovic was out, there was there is just this feeling at the moment. I mean, even when you just reflect over the, the past eighteen months, it's just been such a whirlwind in terms of the, the milestones that are hit repeatedly. You know, the new highs, the new records. You mentioned about four wins in a row. It's think it's the first time in the top flight for Fulham since '66. You know, like that—that's incredible. Like, they, and they're still doing it. Like, it was okay, okay you're doing it in the championship with a good team, and sure, it's a, it's a remarkable campaign. But then to to keep doing this kind of thing in the Premier League as well. I mean, it's the only word for it is, is special, and it, it and you got that sense from the celebrations last night and. What a, what, what a moment too for Vinicius as well. Sadly, Fulham's winning record did come to an abrupt end. Newcastle scored a late winner at St. James's Park after Alexander Mitrovic had had a penalty disallowed after double hitting the ball when he struck it. Spurs then won 1-0 at the Cottage in a drab Monday night match and Fulham up next drew 1-0 with an impressive Sunderland side. However, just 22 days after beating them at Craven Cottage, Fulham played Chelsea once again, this time at Stamford Bridge. The match ended 0-0, but all the plaudits went to Kenny Tete, who played the game of his life. I think it's one of the great fullback performances that I've witnessed in the flesh. It was a masterclass. And whoever Chelsea threw on, whichever amount of money they threw down that left-hand side at Kenny Tete, our £1.8 million right-back was having absolute none of it. Absolute stormer from Kenny Tete. As you say, bought him from Leon for pittance compared to the likes of uh, Madueke and Mudrik, who I thought were kept under closer, you know, close wraps by by the man himself. It was uh, it was really, really beautiful to see a player that is performing at a level which hasn't really been hit since the days of your, you know, your John Pantsels, for example, or your Finnans. I was I mean, gonna say yeah, he 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 is he is operating at a rate which is commendable. I can't I can't even fathom the words at the moment to describe just how well he did last night because uh, he watched play developed. He screened across the back four when he needed to. He was just uh, he was just a pillar of security for us. And um, there isn't a right back in the division at the moment which can do what he does so well. Despite the impressive display at Stamford Bridge, Fulham had gone a few games without a win and ideally needed to get three points to get things back on track. After eventually getting past Sunderland in the cup, they faced Nottingham Forest, who'd been woeful away from home all year. Fortunately, that trend continued and Fulham recorded a relatively comfortable 2-0 win. It wouldn't be so easy next week, though, as we travelled down to the Amex to play Brighton and Hove Albion. Despite being played off the park by Deserby's side, Manor Solomon conjured one of the moments of the season with a last gasp winner. It was the textbook definition of a smash and grab, and we weren't afraid to admit that we got a bit carried away after. Sammy James, you have to say what you said to us on the train from Lewis to Falmer about mm. if we win today. What did you say? I said, I'm, I'm happy to repeat it. I said, if Fulham win today, then you have to start taking that. We have to be considered in the top four race. Yeah. Champions League. I'm not saying we're going to finish in the top four, but if you're writing an article tomorrow about the contenders for the top four and you don't include Fulham, then I actually think that you've got it wrong. I've just got the odds up here. Okay. Uh, Liverpool are at uh, Liverpool at 2.5 to 1. Brighton are at 12 to 1. Chelsea at 26 to 1. Any guesses as to what Fulham are at? 
75 to 1. 80 to 1. Whack a tenner on it. Sadly for those lofty top four hopes, Fulham's form did dip slightly. We progressed against Leeds in the Cup, but dropped points to Wolves at Craven Cottage. Up next, it was Brentford, and we travelled to the G-Tech for the first time for a game with fans. Fulham performed poorly and lost 3-2, much to the frustration of the panel. We just didn't deal with that consistent pressure. We just looked really sleepy. Obviously, everyone will kind of look at the suspended Jao Polinio as the reasons, maybe, but to, as, as a collective, I felt like we looked so sleepy. Um, big names like William and players like that just looked a bit off. And that was really worrying. We weren't able to make those kind of inch perfect crosses and things like that. And, and they just had this consistent pressure and we couldn't soak it up. And obviously they were rewarded within just just six minutes. Um, and obviously when we weren't without Polinia the last time, it was that Newcastle game and we shipped four goals. So I guess it is. it does have a part to play in it. But, um, you know, I, as I was saying, I covered a lot of Brentford, Brentford's games and, and they do that so well, you know, that confidence and that pressure early on. And um, I just felt the game plan was really off and, and it just kind of set the tone for the whole game, really. I just had a really bad feeling about it. With Fulham sitting on 39 points and looking comfortably safe in the Premier League, attentions were naturally turning towards the cup. We'd been drawn in the quarterfinals against Manchester United at Old Trafford and with several big sides out of the tournament, dreams of Wembley were rife. No doubt you probably know the story. A minute of madness became the biggest talking point of Fulham's season. It's a red for someone on the Fulham bench, penalty kick. And it's a red card for Williams. And for Mitrovic as well, who's kicked off big style. And Fulham are losing their heads. I can only describe what I went through as kind of like an out-of-body experience. I was sat on my sofa. It was almost it was almost like I was hallucinating, like in a dream. And not meaning to sound dramatic, but I I had tears genuinely in my eyes. I was messaging friends, friends who are Fulham fans as well. And I messaged them in the morning, be like, this is going to happen today. We're actually going to beat Manchester United. And then for that whole it, real nightmare, and I just felt numb after the game. I, I, I sent for a lot of people in a video, which I think I'll probably live to regret. I think I said something along the lines of Mitrovic should never wear a Fulham shirt again. I look back on it now, almost 24 hours later, and I think, wow, I, I, I was not in a fit mental state when I hit record. <laughs> but numb, Sammy, is probably the only thing I can say. And I, I'm still getting shivers thinking about it now. After the Manchester United game, it was the March international break, which meant there was plenty of column inches and radio hours to fill discussing exactly what punishment Alexander Mitrovic should get with plenty of pundits having some fairly ridiculous takes as to how long the suspension should be. We all knew though that it wouldn't be pretty. And about two and a half weeks after the game, we learned Mitrovic's fate. Alexandra Mitrovic has been banned for eight matches in total, one already served, so seven to go. This is following his red card in Fulham's FA Cup quarterfinal defeat by Manchester United. He was charged with violent and improper conduct after he grabbed the arm of referee Chris Kavanagh. Yeah, I thought it could be worse. I'll be perfectly honest with you. And, and, and so I'm glad that it's not. I still think it's too... Hi. I still think that, as you say, six probably felt about right from from where I was sitting. I think three and another three would have would have felt like it had some sort of consistency of, of what it was to it. And as you say, we've seen bans for various things in football 
not exceed this, which I would suggest are bigger blights on the society that we live in right now um, than someone shouting at the ref. But here we are. Um, as we said at the time, you can't be behaving like that. We expected Mitrovic to get a ban. We said that it was probably fair the Mitrovic got an extended ban for what happened. It's eight games. It's a little bit longer than I would have hoped, but here we are. Following Manchester United, there was some serious Fulham soul searching. There were 11 games left. Relegation wasn't on the card, but what exactly could we realistically achieve from here? Defeats to Bournemouth and West Ham gave the impression that Fulham's season might spiral out of control. Even if relegation was pretty much impossible, a 13th, 14th place finish looked on the cards, which would have been disappointing in all honesty, given how expectations were raised so drastically. Fulham travelled up to face Everton, a side that had been slightly rejuvenated by Sean Dyche. With Carlos Vinicius struggling to make an impact, Marco Silva turned to an unlikely option and it worked incredibly. We just need any striker at the moment and... Bottom of that list, I've got to admit. In fact, it wasn't even on the list. Was Dan James, and thankfully, the Marco Silva, as the song goes, he's a genius. Honestly, <laughs> what that worked so well. Um, it was it was certainly a change up of style of play. We were trying to find him down the channels, very Andy Johnson esque uh, in his in his yes, Fulham heyday. Yes. And it worked beautifully. I love the way that in specific moments, he he chose to help hold the ball up well. He chose to make the runs where he needed to make the runs and his Fulham teammates were finding him quite regularly and he was using the ball really, really effectively. I'm as pleasantly as surprised as any Fulham fan here, but I think a performance like that, a wake-up performance was coming a little bit. I just never expected it to come away at Goodison Park, our famous hoodoo stadium. The week after, we faced another relegation-threatened team and won again. This time, it was Leeds United who were sent packing. However, after that, the games did get much tougher. We lost 1-0 to a red-hot Aston Villa and then champions-in-waiting Manchester City won narrowly at the Cottage. The following Wednesday, we lost 1-0 to Liverpool at Anfield, but again put in a very impressive display. The levels and performance were giving huge optimism that happy days could be around the corner. If we're lucky with injuries, if we make a few key signings, if we retain the signings that we've already made, that spine of the team, then I think anything's possible, you know? Yeah, I just I just don't think that, and lots of people have been quick to say that what Fulham have achieved this season has been a fluke or it's been because of we've exceeded our XG and all of that and all of that. Fulham have had to overcome a lot this season and still finish 10th. You know, we've had injury crises. We've had a massive long suspension for our main player. You know, you look at our friends down the road in uh, at the G-Tech, you know, they've got to face that next season. They've got to face Ivan Tony being out for a long time. They've got problems. We've, we've overcome those problems. And if, if we can get the stars to align next season, I, I honestly think that we're in for another special season. Another special season might just be finishing 10th and reaching the semi-finals of a cup. That's still a great season for Fulham. Like, let's not get above our station here and then demand Europe. No, like, no, no, of course not. But I think, in theory, Fulham can challenge anyone in this league. And we've proven that actually weirdly in the last three games with three defeats. It's kind of odd, isn't it? To, to come out of three defeats kind of happy. But. Yeah, I was so proud of our team last night. Yeah. Really was, really was. The pendulum of hard games to winnable games swung again as Fulham faced another pair of relegation contenders. First of all was Leicester City at Craven Cottage, who was smashed 5-3, a scoreline that hugely flattered the visitors. Fulhamish hosted a live podcast afterwards and spirits were high. It was just so good to see Fulham play with the handbrake off. And obviously a byproduct of that is we're going to be fallible defensively. And it 
did come about, obviously we conceded three goals. If you're Leicester, you'll be so angry coming away, bank holiday Monday, scoring three and still somehow losing. You know, that... <laughs> It, 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 it boggles the mind. Really, Scoring three it? and missing a penalty and as well. And missing a penalty. <laughs> having, That's a bad day. Having two penalties as well. That Leicester game was the final match that Fulham would play without Alexander Mitrovic. Despite initial criticism, Carlos Vinicius filled his void well with two goals and some solid displays up top. On a sunny May day, Fulham headed to Southampton and Marco Silva entrusted Carlos with a starting place. He rewarded the manager's faith with a goal and Mitro still managed to grab a goal off the substitute bench. It was so good to have the big man back. When you look back at strikers in history, there's like icons that played for clubs. And I think Mitrovic is our icon. You know, you have a scoring record of 109 goals and 203 appearances. That is insane for a club of our size to have a striker of that capability. It goes without saying that the record-breaking season last year was so impressive. But I think the way he came out of the traps this year was insane. Like, he carried on the form when so many people wrote him off. I'll, you know, I always remember Leanne Sanderson saying that he was not fit to, to cut, be cut out in the Premier League. He will score less than 10 goals, all of this sort of stuff. You know, so many columns before the season were kind of like, oh, you know, Mitrovic had a great season last year. And will he ever be able to replicate it? You can't stop talent like Mitrovic has. And, you know, we've built this team around him. And you see, as you rightly say, Sammy, as soon as he comes on the pitch, this team raised their tempo. Because I feel like they have almost like a, a bit of a debt to get Mitro firing again, you know. Um, and and for him to come back. And it was just 18 minutes of vintage Mitrovic there. And he knew from the moment he touched that pitch that there was going to be a ball that ended up in the back of the net. And, you know, it came and it was inevitable. Mitro's good form continued with two more goals against Crystal Palace. And then we ended the season with another narrow defeat to a top four side. This time it was a 2-1 reverse at Old Trafford. Despite ending the year on a loss, spirits were still high during the final podcast of the season. It's It's been the best season you could have hoped for. Like you say, 17th places, every, everyone wanted it. Everyone would have taken it. and And yet... And even coming into a league where, you know, it was going to be super competitive, you know, we were coming in as second, third favourites to go down with Bournemouth and Forest and Leeds and, and Everton and teams like that. And I just thought we're going to have to do wonders just to, to keep ourselves in the division this season. The stigma that came with our, with our, with our club coming into the Premier League season, everyone was sick of the sight of us really because we were up and down, up and down. I've said it so many times this season, but we haven't looked back since since the opening game of the season at all. And we've had little periods in the season where we've gone two defeats in a row a few times, but but it hasn't been oh two defeats in a row. I'm I'm getting worried now. It's it's basically been actually you know what we could afford to drop these points because we picked up so many in the in the previous games leading up to that that poor run of form. You know, from from players like Mitrovic, Willian, Leno, Paulinia, Tosin, Diop, just Reem. So many players have just exceeded expectations. But at the start, everyone was like, wow, Fulham are actually really good and really competitive. And Marco Silva's earned the respect back of the of the perception of him when he obviously went to Everton after the Watford and, and Hull job. It's just been the most amazing. And 
what's more important, comfortable season. Thanks so much for listening to our second ever Fulhamish Annual, a recap of the 22-23 season with clips from the podcast telling the story. Fulham eventually finished in 10th place with a total of 52 points, 15 wins, 55 goals scored and 53 goals conceded. Not too shabby. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share with your friends and Fulhamish will return for another episode in a few days' time. All right, you